So if you went anywhere in the world and it was a typical sample of people, 25% of everyone you looked at is a Muslim. Hindus. Hindus number 1.16 billion people, namely 15% of the world's population. So if you went anywhere, anywhere in the world, and it was a normal sampling of people, 15% of all those people are Hindus. And the number of uh, Buddhists in our world today are roughly 500 million. And they number about 5% of the world's population. So if you just add those, those are four religions. And by the way, there are hundreds of religions in our world today. Those are just four of them. They amount to 6 billion people, which happens to run to 76% of the world's population. Now, that's not true in the United States today. We're increasingly a secular society. But if we went throughout the world, this is what we would find. People are very, very religious. So if you know anything about humanity, from the oldest civilizations we have any record of, to this day, people are incorrigibly religious. We live in a very religious world. You might not know that, but if you don't, you don't know our world. And if you do know anything about history, you also know honestly that many wars, many wars and conflicts have been fought among and by religious people. Many of them. The Crusades, the Thirty Years' War being just two examples of hundreds of wars and conflicts that religious people have had against each other. However, if you are an honest soul, by the way, you may not get this in school, but if they, you don't get it in school, you have been given an extraordinarily distorted view. Extraordinary. There's not one person on the planet who looks into the truth that would not know that the worst wars by far, the most deaths by far, have been perpetrated by atheistic regimes numbering some 100 million dead people. So the greatest evil in our world is actually non-religious worldviews, though religious worldviews are responsible for massive wars throughout history, but not the worst in terms of numbers. Those are by non-religious or atheistic societies. Either way, the question remains, how do we deal in this world with all these religions? Well, there are some obvious answers. The first one you see on bumper stickers. You've probably seen them everywhere. What's the word? Coexist. Yes, and so you have the symbols of all these different religions coexist, which, frankly, I wish we could because I would like that. I believe that we should not use coercion for anything with regard to religion, but we should allow in the free marketplace of ideas for these religions to debate with one another. That's what I personally believe. I wish we could coexist. However, how do you coexist? If this day we were Hindu people, we would um, go back to the, the Hindu proverb, which is well known in Hinduism. Remember, 1.1 billion people hold to that religion is they believe that, that, that religion is like a mountain, and there are many paths up that mountain, not just one path, and all of them eventually get you to the top. That's one view of religion that's common in our world today. All religions have a little bit of truth, and they, none of them have all the truth, but they will eventually get you to the top of the mountain. That's a common view. 
There's an even more common view among the Buddhist people. It's the parable of the blind men and the elephant. And in this particular parable, um, you have a bunch of, you have several blind people who are asked to go and touch an elephant and then to describe what they have touched. And someone just holds the trunk and another a foot and another the tail and another, uh, another portion of it. And they each give different descriptions of what they felt. And so this particular parable then says, sums it up by saying that human beings have the have the tendency to claim that they have moral truth, but in fact, they only see a portion of the truth. And so that's a very common view among people today. In fact, it's a view that is behind what is today called religious pluralism, which means that all religions are maybe true, but none of them are altogether true. And so we need to learn that this is their truth and somebody else's truth, and we just kind of coexist with these various truths. And in fact, you may not know this, but in terms of Christians, almost 50% of Christians today, in a poll taken last year, believe, quote, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That's called pluralism. In fact, many, it's less than 50%, it's 46%, or 42%, 42% agree with that statement. The problem is that that statement is not an accurate statement of Christianity. In fact, the Bible teaches that, in fact, religion in general may be dangerous, and Christianity in particular is exclusively true. And part of our worldview as a Christian is that though we believe that we should coexist with all these other religions and we do not coerce people to believe what we believe, we believe that the tr Christian truth claim is true for all. So you would call us exclusivists. By the way, almost all religions are exclusive. Islam is exclusive. Hinduism is exclusive. Buddhism is exclusive, as is Christianity. We all are. We all say, we believe this is the path, the path to God. The others might have some things that are true, but there's only one path to God. Well, we claim that to be true for us. And so today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in which the Apostle Paul is going to point out what are the dangers of religion. Because religion isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Now remember what's happening in Romans. It began with the Apostle Paul giving an introductory statement in which he said that he is going to now show us a, a plan that's based on the righteousness of God, not based on our righteousness. That's quite unique among religions. We don't have that, typically. Usually religions are based on how can I be righteous enough to be acceptable to God, but Christianity says no, no one is righteous enough. God is the only righteous one, and he will give his righteousness to us. That's a, quite a different view of things. And remember, we started off with, um, remember we, I, planned, I played the middle C, um, and our middle C, the center of our worldview, is Jesus and the gospel. 
But then we turn to the subject of what's wrong with the world? All religions, in fact, all philosophies say something's wrong. We're messed up on this earth. What is it? And then remember, I quoted G.K. Chesterton when he was asked by the London Times to write an essay on what's wrong with the world. He wrote back very briefly and said, I am. Yeah, I am. Which is the Christian message. The Christian message is what's wrong with the world? I am. My sin. And so we focus, first of all, on on the sin of people who, all of us. And when we turn to, to away from God, we disregard him, we don't give him thanks, we start a downward cycle that leads ultimately to the reversal of right and wrong. And that's not a good plan. However, there are many people in our world that are Christian, non-Christian of other religion who are good people. They're moral people. And they see what Paul wrote in the first part of Romans about the pagans. And they say, well, that may be the pagans, but that's not me. And Paul says, you're right. You're a moralist. You're trying to live a moral life. Now I'm going to show you what's wrong with moralism. And that's what we talked about last week. Moralism doesn't work either. Christianity is not trying to make bad people good and good people better. That's not Christianity. Christianity is all about taking dead people and making them alive. It's not about bad people becoming good and good people becoming better. That's moralism. That's not Christianity. And God points out in his word how moralism doesn't work. But there's a third group. This third group says, well, we're not those pagans who are doing everything against God, and we're not the moralists who are trying to do their best. We're religious. We have God on our side. After all, we're, and now he's going to talk about the Jewish people, we're God's chosen people. We are people who are part of his covenant. We have the sign of the covenant, circumcision. We follow the law of God. Certainly, we are acceptable in God's eyes, aren't we? Paul says, no, you are even worse because what religion will often do to you is it will corrupt you with hypocrisy. So today we're going to look at what's wrong with religion. Now the first thing he's going to do is is he's going to focus on codes of conduct. You see, every religion has codes of conduct. Um, if, if you're Buddhist, it's the, the wheel with the eight spokes, the eightfold path, a code of conduct. If, if, if you're Muslim, you have Sharia law, which tells you their Muslim code of conduct. If you're Jewish, you have, of course, the, the law of Moses. The, the Ten Commandments and the 613 Commandments, which are found in the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the books of Moses. Every religion has its books of law. And so often what religions communicate to people is, if you follow the rules, you're okay with God. Well, let's see what Paul says. This is Romans chapter 2, verse 17 to 24. Now, notice the word if. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, and if you rely on the law and boast about God, 
And if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now he begins with four blessings that are enjoyed by the Jewish people. They're all found under the word if. If you call yourself a Jew, and what did the Jews call themselves? They called themselves the chosen people of God. And it says, and if you rely on the law and boast in God's, they were the recipients of the handwriting of God, they said, the Ten Commandments. They not only were the chosen people of God, they had the special revelation of the word of God. And because of that, they saw themselves as having a superior way of life, better than anyone else's way of life, because in this law, God showed us what was right and wrong. And if we did what was right, our lives would prosper. And if we did what was wrong, our lives would fall apart. And they said, and God called us on a mission. Our mission was to be a guide to the blind, a light to the nations. That's who we are. And Paul says, oh, nice, good. Then he asks them five questions. You who think you're great teachers, do you teach yourself? Who's teaching you? And you who preach against stealing, thou shalt not steal, one of the Ten Commandments. Do you steal? And you who, who say, you shall not commit adultery, do you do it? By the way, the Talmud, that's part of the Jewish religious body of, 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 of literature, three of their most illustrious rabbis were adulterers. And remember, one of our greatest writers of Holy Scripture was an adulterer. His name is David. And you who abhor idols, do you rob pagan temples? And in fact, there was a case, there was, it was known that, um, that during the time of, um, of the Apostle Paul, some Jewish people, they would, um, they, they would uh, steal from the pagan temples. And he said, you who, who, who say, oh, we worship the true God, and we are against idolatry. Do you so idolize your money that you don't give any money for the building and the maintenance of the temple? And then he says, do you who boast about how wonderful is the law of God? We love the Bible. We love the Bible. We love the Bible. But you don't practice the Bible. I, um, I've been to Israel many times. And our, our guide when we're there in Israel is a, a secular Jew. We love him. He's not religious. But, oh, he does not like the Jewish religious people. He calls them parasites. Because they 
They believe that they, they don't work. They live on welfare, many of them. They have lots of children, and they, um, and they just study the law and pray. And he calls them parasites. You're living off the wealth. You work, you're living off the work of other people as you don't even work. That's what he says. And he says, and then you see how Paul ends this section. He says, because of the fact that you claim to be such holy and mighty people, but you don't live that way, who gets the bad rap? God. You're giving God a bad name. Paul, someone wrote this. Only if the law is done and done perfectly will the election on the basis of the Mosaic Covenant be of value to the Jews. You say, oh, you proclaim you have the Holy Bible. How wonderful. Well, do you do it? Do you practice it? The truth is we don't. You see, the Jewish people had many benefits. They were chosen by God. They were given the name. Their very name means the worship of God. They were given possession of God's word. They were granted knowledge of God's will. They had a, an ethical code greatly superior to Hammurabi's code, which preceded Moses' code by a few hundred years, but way superior. They thought that they were selected by God to be the teachers of God's ways to the entire world. They were given a promised land. They had, however, if you wanted to look into their history, they had an intensive and a long-standing track record of disobeying God. You see, seeking to attain favor with God by following the law will never cut it. Why? Well, first of all, none of us can ever keep the law because God's law is far higher than any of us ever think. And the problem with law is that law increases sin. It doesn't diminish it. Just think about prohibition in the United States of America. They stopped the, the, the sale of alcohol, and alcohol sales went up, not down. It happens all the time. You see, religion tends to magnify hypocrisy, to which we are often blind, but our world is not blind to it. And then they turn away from God. I was in my hometown of Longmont, um, some years ago, meeting at someone's house with a group of Saudi Arabians who were here studying in America at, at CSU. And uh, I got talking to them, and I, uh, they were delightful. And of course, they were all Muslim. And I asked them, um, Did you got, do you get to travel while you're here in the United States? And they said, oh, yes. I said, is there any place you like in particular? They said, yes, Las Vegas. I said, oh, Interesting. And then I said to them, is there any place that you've traveled recently that you've enjoyed? Yes! We went to Florida for spring break. You didn't catch it. Those are not what they're supposed to be doing. Gambling is prohibited, and of course, all that goes on at spring break is against them. But that's what they loved. That's, again, uh, the, the hypocrisy. You see, rules and regulations don't work at all. Oh, there's an incredible passage the early church around the year 50 AD, this is 20 years after Jesus left our, our planet, the church is, is struggling with, do we impose these rules and regulations from Moses on the new Christians? Do we do that? And there was a group in the church that said, yes, to be a Christian means you follow the law. 
There was a group led by the Apostle Paul, and Apostle Peter said, no, we don't impose the, the, many of the um, strictures of the Old Testament law on the Gentiles. No! And then Peter got up to speak, and this is what he said. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. Peter says, how dare we Jews try to impose on the Gentiles a law that we have never kept ourselves? That's called hypocrisy. That's what law does. Law tends to increase hypocrisy, and hypocrisy among people who claim to follow God's law gives God a really bad name. But it gets worse. Because now, the first thing that religious people always have is we have laws, rules and regulations. But there's another thing that characterizes all religions. I would call them rituals and rites. We have, this is a ritual, a rite, communion. That is a ritual, a rite, baptism. This is a ritual which we just had, worship. These are rituals and rites. All all religions have them. They have prayers, they have fastings, they have meetings, they have holy days, they have pilgrimages, they have all these things. This is characteristic of religious people. Now, among the Jewish people, their most important religious ritual and rite was circumcision. Because circumcision was that right given by God to Abraham, which set them apart as the people who were the covenant people of God. And they believed that if you were circumcised as a Jew, your salvation was intact. That's all it takes. Well, that's baloney. (laughs) That's garbage. We do the same thing. If you've been baptized, you go to heaven. If you're a member of a church, hey, you go to heaven. If you prayed the sinner's prayer, you go to heaven. If you attend church during the high holy days, you go to heaven. We have the same kind of thing. You got to pass. Well, let's see what God says about that. This is Oh, oh, by the way, let me just give you a test just to see if you're still awake. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you some religious rites and rituals. And all you have to do, and shout it out, is tell me what religion we're talking about. Here we go. Roaming cows all over the streets. Thank you. Hinduism, because that's a sacred animal. Bindi, a a dot on the forehead. Hinduism and Buddhism as well. Namaste. Hinduism as well. Yoga and meditation. Hinduism. Oh, good. You got those. Okay. What about phylacteries? Boxes with scripture verses on their foreheads. That's Orthodox Jewish. Yes. What about worship on the Sabbath day? Jewish. Kosher foods. 
Jewish, okay? What about monks in saffron robes? Buddhism, oh, you're doing better. Now you're, prayer wheels. Buddhism as well, okay? What about um, the fish symbol? Christian, what about Sunday worship? Christian, again, what about the sign of the cross? Oh, you got that one, okay. What about prayer five times a day facing Mecca? Muslim or Islam. What about worship on Friday? Islam as well. well um, I could go on. You got it, you're doing well. What about long hair under a turban? Do you know that one? You must not have too many here. That's Sikh, that's the Sikh religion. Okay, well, you see, you just saw, you, you identify religions by their, their rites, their rituals, their clothing. Now what's God going to say about that kind of stuff? Well, let's see. This is verse 25. Circumcision, that's the number one right for Jewish people. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law... You've become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not regard you as though you were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. You see, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Woo, now there's an attack. That'll get you killed. And, of course, it did get him killed eventually. You see, one of the names that the Jewish people called Gentiles back in the first century, were, they were called uncircumcised dogs. That's who I am, I guess, because I'm a Gentile, uncircumcised dogs. And they believed that because they were circumcised, they got a free pass into heaven. These are some of their rabbis. Rabbi Menachem, in his commentary on the book of Moses, wrote, quote, our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will ever see hell. Another rabbi said, circumcision saves from hell. And another midrash, that's a, 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 like a sermon on the Bible, wrote, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. So that's what was being taught in Paul's day, that if you were circumcised, and of course circumcision for the Jewish people was a, a rite that was done on the eighth day of a boy, a boy's birth, just after they were born. But once you were circumcised, that was a sure sign that you could not go to hell. And so their trust was in this physical act, which their parents did for them. They didn't even do it themselves. They had no recollection of it as an eight-day-old child. But that's what they trusted for their salvation. And Paul says, yes, this is the symbol that God gave to Abraham, a precious symbol, an important symbol that, that signified your, your participation in the covenant family of God. But this is not what saves you. And if, in fact, you're trusting in this physical act that has not changed your heart, 
You're lost. You're wrong. Do, do we do similar things to that? Do we place false confidence in rituals, in things that are external? I mentioned, like, participation in communion. This is a holy thing we're going to do today, but it will not bring you entrance into heaven. It's a symbol of what Christ has done for us. And if, in fact, what it symbolizes has become a part of your life, yeah, that makes a big difference. That will get you to heaven. Um, Baptism, confirmation, church membership, church attendance, even just praying some rote prayer that doesn't, that has never really become a part of your life. No, those don't give us free paths at all, unfortunately. Well, it gets worse. <laughs> because now the Apostle Paul is going to end this section with telling us this, that your religious righteousness If you think you're going to become righteous in God's eyes by your religious practices, what you do and you don't do, by certain rites that you're part of, what that's going to do to you is it's going to turn you into an idiot. You're going to start making rationalizations that are wrong. And by the way, it's interesting if you take the word rationalize, to rationalize, two words, rational lies. Things that are false that you make sound true. You make lies sound rational. Rationalize. Watch what they do. This is Paul. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to ask four questions, and then he's going to give four answers. Here's the first. What advantage then is there for being in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? So the first question is, a Jewish person might say, okay, Well, if circumcision is not going to get me a free pass to heaven, why bother being a Jew? What advantage is there? Here's his answer. Oh, there's much in every way. You've been entrusted with the very words of God. Don't you know that being Jewish is a huge advantage because God gave his word first to you? Don't, Don't you see that? Is there an advantage to being a Jew? Yes. Question number two. Well, what if some are unfaithful? This is verse three. Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? In other words, well, is God's faithfulness nullified if we are not faithful? Because if that was the case, we'd all be in trouble because we're all unfaithful. And Paul's answer to that is, no, no. Our unfaithfulness does not nullify the faithfulness of God because a a broken covenant does not impair the honor of the faithful party. God is the faithful party. We are not. And that's why salvation is based upon God's righteousness, not our righteousness. So then he asks the third question. If our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust for bringing his wrath upon us? In other words, if our unrighteousness, the fact that we don't keep the law, accentuates God's faithfulness, well, 
Why should he condemn us? Because he's looking good. We're looking bad, but he looks good. Isn't that nice? And Paul says, no, you got it wrong. And now here's the ultimate justification. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some dangerously claim to say, let us do evil that good may result? So here's the fourth, fourth question. Okay, God, if my unfaithfulness puts a magnifying lens on how faithful you are, if my sin makes your grace look all the better, I got a deal, God. Here it is. How about if I sin a real lot? And then you have to give me an awful lot of grace. And so who looks good? You do. So let's sin a bunch. Paul says, preposterous. That's like the worst rationalization you could ever come up with. So you think that your sin makes God look better, so we should sin more so that God looks even better? That's ridiculous. But we come up with some crazy ones like that too. Remember Eve's, after his, her sin was pointed out? She said, oh. or, 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 or when Adam's sin was pointed out, he said, oh God, it wasn't me. It was your fault. You gave me that woman. That's why I sinned. I mean, that's stupid. Or remember um, Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother Abel, and God tries to find out for him, find him. And, and Abel goes, hey, who do you think I am? Am I my brother's keeper? That's stupid, too. The dumbest one of all in the Bible. Remember, Moses was up on the Mount Sinai receiving the law of God. He came down, and there was a golden calf. People were dancing and worshiping a stupid, dumb calf. And so God says, and, and Aaron is leading. The, 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 the high priest is leading the worship around this dumb calf. And so Moses said, Aaron, what are you doing? Yes, here's what he said. So Aaron said to them, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. And here's what Aaron said. So they gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. It just came out of the fire. You gotta be kidding. That's like the dumbest thing you could ever imagine. Aaron said, I didn't do it, Moses. No, it wasn't me. I just threw that gold into the fire and out came this calf. You know, fires are really good sculptors. You know, they make really nice calves. But that's how dumb we become. You see, the, deep into the heart of a human being is the, the demand that we justify our sin. But our justifications are, are, are really dumb. And they, they, they become absurd after a while. Um, I remember I was in, on the street called Straight in Damascus. I was sitting there with our guide. His name was Ahmed. He was Muslim. And as we were sitting there drinking a, a, a Coca-Cola, we heard the call to prayer. And I looked around, and there are hundreds of people all over the streets there. And I said, Ahmed, I don't see anyone praying. Isn't that the call to prayer? He said, yes. I said, We're, I thought you were supposed to do that five times a day when you hear the call to prayer. He said, here's how it works. He said, we don't follow that. He said, we don't follow that. Um, you, you don't really follow that until you go on the Hajj to Mecca. And you want to do that when you're really old. That's what he said. 
So when you get old and you go on to Mecca, you better follow the, the pillars. But until then, ah, don't throw it away. We don't do that. I mean, that's dumb. Remember what our Bible says? God doesn't say, remember your creator when you get real old and you're ready to kick the bucket. He doesn't say that. He says, remember your creator in the days of your youth when you're young. So then you get to enjoy a life of walking with God. It's good. But there's a, a dumb thing. I, I remember I've been, when I was in Rome, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Santa Scala. It's a set of stairs that, they, that Queen Helena, Constantine's mother, brought back from, from uh, Israel to Rome. And they are apparently the, stay, the stairs, it's not true, but they purport them to be, the stairs that um, Pilate um, condemned Jesus. And so there they have a sign that if you crawl up these stairs and, and pray, you get a number of years out of purgatory. I've done it twice. Um, so I guess I'm really doing well, but I think it's baloney. My knees hurt. That's what happened at the end of it. But, you know, so you, get, so you, you crawl up some stairs and you get out of purgatory? That's dumb. But you see, that's the kind of thing that we religious people do. And that's why it doesn't work. What's wrong with religion? Well, you see, religious rules and regulations, they tend to magnify our hypocrisy. They don't work. And religious rites and rituals tend to fuel false confidence. That's not true. And religious righteousness tends to breed these ridiculous rationalizations that we, we often make. Oh, there are things that we share in common with other religions. We share uh, common, some common rules we share. We share some, some uh, uh, the, the golden rule. You find a, a version of it in almost all of the classical religions. We have similar moral codes. But someone wrote this. You see, those who think all religions are the same, look at the wrappings instead of the content. Christianity is different. Our concept of God is different. Three in one. Jesus is different. The incarnate one, the sinless one, the one whose death on the cross took our sins and who was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. There's no religion that shares that. The whole idea of grace, God's unmerited favor, his unconditional love for us while we were yet sinners. Oh, there are many facets of Christianity that are unique. No one else touches them. Unfortunately, religions lead us in the wrong way. So I leave you with some questions. Does my walk match my talk? Do I condemn things in others that I practice myself? Does the way I live my life cause people to be more or less interested in Jesus? Honestly, do I believe that God loves me more if I participate in communion or get baptized? These are important, but he won't love us anymore. He loves us right now all he could, right now. Do I come up with dumb rationalizations for my sin? Let's not do it. That's what religion breeds. We don't have to. We can come before God clean. Say, oh God, I, I, I messed up again. Forgive me. I know you would, because that's why Jesus died for me. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. It was Jesus who said, 
I am. I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in, in Acts, we have this incredible verse. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved apart from the name of Jesus. And what we're about to do now is to remember Jesus. And what we're about to do, though there's nothing unique about the ceremony, what it stands for stands alone and apart and light years greater than anything this world has ever seen. That God would die for me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, that is amazing. To think that you, the one who created us, created the universe, whose magnificence is beyond comparison, who's so huge that our universe can't contain you, that you would come to this planet, you'd become a baby, you'd get mistreated, killed, and you'd do it because you love the likes of me. That's amazing grace. And we don't even begin to live in light of it. But we pray that your Holy Spirit this day would help us to just catch a slight, slight glimpse of how much you love us and what you have done for us through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.